if you're in the market for a premium Charman SUV like a three-pronged suppository, a Bavarian money waster, or a trumped-up four-ringed Volkswagen, then you're going to pay roughly twice as much as you would for a fully loaded Kia Sorento GT line. And is the German SUV going to be better? Yeah, maybe this much. Is it going to be twice as good? Not even close. Details next. I'm John Cadogan from autoexpert.com.au and I get new cars cheap for buyers here in Australia. Hit me up on the website. Like that. After driving this car for a week now, I've got a question for you, okay? And it's a question I'm struggling with as well. How do the premium Charman brands differentiate themselves into the future? Because all technology is available off the rack now. And how do they therefore prevent brands like Kia from catching up and even, heaven forbid, overtaking over the next five to 10 years? I am, of course, looking forward to a substantial amount of hate in the comments. <laughs> Don't disappoint me. If you are that dude looking for outrage, sitting alone in the basement, with all your friends, in other words, ready to let me have it with your outrage, I'm in, as Jeep would say. But if you are an actual car buyer, you know, someone with the cash and the need for seven seats and versatility, new Sorento is good. Not perfect, of course, but pretty damn good and certainly better than the notion many people will have in their heads when they consider the term flagship Kia. So if you haven't thought about brand Kia since, I don't know, 2010 or something, maybe it's time for you to recalibrate. In this report, I'm targeting you, the actual new SUV buyer. What a dangerous precedent to set. I'm gonna lay out exactly what I like about the new Sorento, and there is a lot to like about this vehicle, but there are imperfections too, and some things it does poorly. Right at the end of this report, I'll address those shortcomings. This review is completely independent. Everything I say here is my honest personal opinion about this vehicle and the company selling it. I drove a Sport Plus for a week and spent the best part of a day in the range-topping GT line, both diesels. Those criticisms I just mentioned at the end, well, they probably would not be there if this review were paid for or if I was all that concerned about securing Kia's advertising revenue in coming months. Car makers are so funny like that. This is the fourth generation Sorento on an all new platform with an updated diesel, new transmission for the diesel, new interior and new exterior, new infotainment, new car smell, etc. It's actually the same old new car smell, but there you go. But like all things in the car industry, nothing is ever 
totally new. Lots of the key components just kind of evolve over time, copying an injection of new technology on the way through. There's absolutely no doubt that the diesel is the premium engine in the range. And I know diesels become something of a dirty word, thanks very much Volkswagen, but basically in Australia there are no plans to diminish the availability of diesel fuel or regulate it out of existence or anything like that. In fact, in Australia we drink 10 billion litres of diesel fuel every year and obviously a lot of that is for the trucking industry but a great deal of it is for ordinary punters like you who just want an engine with more mid-range power than the equivalent petrol offering. And the other thing I'd suggest is that DPFs, you know the particle filter that all diesels come with, they've got a bad reputation as well although Hyundai Kia does a pretty good job with DPF installations and they really don't have a reliability issue. The one thing I'd suggest though is if you buy in particular the diesel just get it out on the open road maybe once a fortnight or something like that drive it for 45 minutes or an hour in total on the open road and that'll do a whole bunch of things that basically improve things for your engine like it'll purify the oil it'll give the dpf the chance to do its mad regeneration voodoo and you'll be able to take that special someone to a scenic location where you can have a massive bust up you know you can have an argument about something that really doesn't matter and drive home in stony silence yes the diesel is a 2.2 litre turbo, which is basically an evolution of the predecessor. It's got an all aluminium block now, which shaves almost 20 kilos off the bathroom scales. And together with the new transmission for that engine, it delivers hybrid-like fuel economy of 6.1 litres per 100 k's on the official combined cycle lab test and 5.3 on the highway. That's pretty impressive. You should really consider the diesel, but if you're a petrol only kind of dude or dudette, there's a V6 petrol in the range as well, available in all four model grades. How this works, okay, Australia is not really a big enough market to exert very much pressure on the factory. So we get to choose two basic powertrain configurations. One would be the diesel all-wheel drive powertrain, which is favoured in Europe. And the other one would be V6 front drive, which is championed in America. So basically what I'd like to see is a V6 all-wheel drive mode as well in the range, which is impossible because they tell me that the V6 cannot be packaged with all-wheel drive, but I just get the feeling like that might be the best of both worlds for those people who don't really want diesel, but they do want to go out there and do a little bit of adventuring, which the front drive version is not really that compatible with. And the other thing I'd suggest is that you know, the V6 is fine and all, but I can't help but feel it's a bit of a dinosaur because if Kia went out and developed an engine not unlike Mazda's 2.5 litre four-cylinder turbo engine, I think that would be the perfect replacement for the V6. And if you look at the specs, an engine like that is already making more mid-range power at two and a half litres with a turbo 
than the V6 Atmo engine makes, so it would definitely be a better drive. If you're an average sort of driver looking for a versatile mainstream SUV with five seats and a large cargo bay, or seven seats and modest cargo capacity, then Sorento V6 is a definite starter for your consideration. You can probably live with the V6 and the front drive configuration and you'll save a few bucks up front if you do. The diesel is definitely superior. It's smoother and more composed, thanks in part to the all-wheel drive powertrain, and also because the diesel just makes more mid and low RPM power, so it just feels more responsive in more driving situations. It's also a lot more fuel efficient, but also more expensive up front. On the subject of adventuring, Sorento diesel all-wheel drive is compatible with dirt roads and easy fire trails and driving of that nature like modest adventure, not raiding the freaking lost ark. If you throw properly difficult terrain its way, you will probably break something. It's just not designed for beating the outback into submission. All-wheel drive is a real plus for family camping, like if it rains overnight and the dirt road you drove in on turns to mush, you stand a far better chance of fronting up for work on Monday morning with all-wheel drive. So if that's you, buy the diesel. There's a new transmission with the diesel as well. Now I don't blame you if you're sitting there going, why is he not thrashing this car? He's breaching the motoring journalist code of ethics with a test car or something. And the reason is pretty simple because I'm about to torture test the brand new eight speed dual clutch transmission. And this is actually the harshest thing you can do to a dual clutch. Check this out. We're up quite a steep hill at the moment and just using really gentle throttle pressure to get going. And the acid test here for dual clutch transmissions is, I can't really pick the point where the automated clutch engages and we've got full drive forward. And that's the sincerest compliment I could ever give a bunch of engineers working on the development of a dual clutch transmission because, you know, they're going to be fantastic at shifting at speed, you know, lightning fast upshifts and downshifts. That's what dual clutch transmissions are good at. But I've been driving this car for a week now and it's very hard to confuse this dual clutch. It's extremely refined off the mark and I suspect that 95% of people who drive this vehicle, they'll just think it's a conventional automatic. And that's probably the nicest thing you could ever say to an engineer who designed a dual clutch transmission. There are four specification grades. Starting at the bottom is the S, then the Sport, the Sport Plus and Topping out the range, the GT line. And there is an $18,000 gap between the V6 front drive S poverty pack at about 47,000 bucks drive away and the range topping diesel all wheel drive GT line at about 65 grand. So how do you make sense of that? I'd suggest it's like this bottom of the range is only there to appeal to bean counters. Specifically, the kind of bean counters who buy vehicles by the dozen for corporate fleets. So the car maker strips out almost everything they can to get the price low. Bean counters love that, but you might not. 
If you're buying a vehicle for yourself on a relatively tight budget, take one step up because Sport is a lot better than S. And it's only three grand more, which is not all that much in the context of what you're already spending. You add dual zone climate control air conditioning, inbuilt GPS navigation, tyre pressure monitoring, and a power driver's seat. Sport Plus is the smart choice on value. And yeah, it's another four and a half thousand dollar step up on the budget, but you get a proximity key with push button start plus a powered tailgate for juggling the groceries and leather, remote start capability, heated seats for mum and dad and USBs up the back to help shut the brats up on those long trips. GT Line is of course the works burger and it's gonna cost you another six and a half grand over and above the budget for Sport Plus. It's got everything though, like a premium instrument cluster, a blind view monitor, which is actually pretty clever, but only useful if you think about it, if you can't adjust your mirrors properly. You can also park a GT Line remotely and that's good if you're really spatially challenged or I suppose morbidly obese. Plus you get a 360 degree camera and a premium sound system. And this stuff is all quite nice, obviously, if you've got the cash. But can you live without it and like living with the Sport Plus? Yeah, absolutely. And maybe you're sitting there and wondering if a vehicle like the Sorento is too big for you. And I'd suggest, no, it's really not. Because far too much is made of the differences in sizes between vehicles. In reality, Sorento's not all that much bigger than a Serato. When you look at it in terms of its absolute dimensions, its length and its width and its height, you know. Height is the biggest difference and it's the least relevant to practicality. This vehicle manages to be nimble around town, but it's also pretty effortless to cruise on the highway. But if I were to be a nitpicking prick, and let's face it, might as well play to your strengths, it is a little bit harsh. It's particularly harsh on small bumps. You know, a little bit of that jarring comes through in a way that it really hasn't on previous Kias. And if you want to nitpick, then that is the deficiency. And I guess in part, this is because they've upped the tow capacity to two tons and they've increased the tow ball download limit to 200 kilograms. And the nature of engineering trade-off is that in that context, something's got to give. How does he do it? How does he remember exactly what he's going to say seamlessly without stopping and reading from uh, a cheat sheet? We really do need to talk about towing, okay? Because Kia did intimate that two and a half tons was gonna be the tow capacity for new Sorento. And here we are with the production version actually driving it and the limit as specified by them is two tons. You get 200 kilos on the ball, which was what was promised at the outset. And my question was straight away, jumped off the spec sheet at me, like what happened to the missing 500 kilos? Is it something to do with the platform? Is it something to do with the new dual clutch transmission? What the? And after a protracted conversation on this, where I said, well, might have to speculate. And they said, well, don't speculate about the platform or the DCT because it's actually a consequence of the tow bar design, okay? So what they do is they've got their protocols for endurance testing this and that, and they don't go into it in great detail because they don't want to give the game away to the competition. 
but apparently they do 100,000 cycles of testing with the tow bar design that they had and they were only confident, mm. meaning robustly confident that the vehicle would endure in the most severe situations at two tons. So if you were looking forward to two and a half tons, you're going to be disappointed. And I'll do a more detailed package on this if you are that towing dude. Okay. But what I would suggest is this vehicle weighs about two tons. Okay. And trailers of the kind that you tow routinely in Australia are dynamically fairly unstable in pitch and yaw. And this is why I always say it's kind of a bad idea to tow a vehicle that weighs more than the vehicle towing it. So if your trailer weighs more than the vehicle towing it, you are really in line to get nudged around by the trailer. And in particular, you don't want to be turned into a dynamically unraveling pendulum in your, like a compound pendulum. And you see these failures captured on dash cam from time to time. And it is really gripping stuff and quite entertaining if <laughs> you're not part of it or coming the other way while it happens, let's not forget. So two tons is the limit. That's pretty rational. If you wanted to tow two and a half though, I think the real uh, differential diagnosis there, the real acid test, if you like, is gonna be what are they going to do with Santa Fe when it comes out? Because it might be released with a two and a half ton tow capacity. There might be a different tow bar design there. So if you are looking for that heavy tow thing, maybe you should wait and see what happens over at House of Hyundai. I have flat out lost count of the number of times I've heard someone say, it's pretty good for a Kia. I think we can drop that now, frankly, because this is just pretty good. But like all cars, of course, it ain't perfect. And if you've got the big bucks and they are burning a hole in your pocket, you really don't want to spend them and then find that the vehicle is not everything you hoped it would be. So let us repair to the fat cave and talk about what could be improved in perhaps future Sorrentos. Okay, so criticism's in just a sec, right? But remember when I said at the outset of this report that the German premium car was going to cost you like twice as much? Well, let me lay that out for you, okay? Because it's fascinating. I'm not for a moment suggesting that these vehicles are the same thing. I'm talking about value, features, and intangibles like the value of a brand. A fully loaded Sorento GT line is about 65 grand drive away, and it is properly premium by any definition. But it's still a lot of money to pay in the domain of mainstream brands. And some people will say this is a lot of money to pay for a Kia, even though Kia is the number six brand in the market currently. So I think that ship has sailed, but I also think perception has some catching up to do. So Here's this comparison for you, right? A three-pronged suppository GLE, the base model Chitois by any estimation, I don't think they call it that, but that's what it is. It's about $115,000 drive away, okay? And it's got the badge, but in fact, it is pretty poverty when you sit inside. In fact, to get the Peasants GLE up to roughly the same spec as a Sorento GT line, 
you're going to need to add the seven seat package and the comfort package for the heated and cooled seats this time, you know, plus real leather because only fake leather is standard in the base model Benz. You'll also need the vision package for the wireless charging pad and the sunroof upstairs and the premium sound system. And when you add all of that up, that's a total of $15,500 in additional options. It brings the roughly equivalent suppository GLE up to 130 grand, let's say. So it's two Sorento GT lines or one heavily optioned poverty GLE. And to be fair, the GLE makes 14% more power across most of the rev range, albeit from a smaller engine. It does not go any better, however, because it's substantially heavier up front. Power to weight of both vehicles is actually identical until you add all of the factory options you need to get that rough equivalence thing happening, and then the Kia is going to go better. Tow capacity is 2.7 tonnes on the GLE versus 2,000 on the Sorento. But the Sorento carries a heap more payload when it's loaded to its maximum towing capacity. Sorento also has a full-sized spare, which the Benz does not. And the Sorento is 12% more fuel efficient, mainly by virtue of being 400 kilos lighter. But the new dual-clutch transmission also helps. They used a lot of advanced high-strength steel in the new Sorento architecture too, which allows them to cut the kilos, ultimately. Some of the critical bits are even hot-stamped, which is pretty high-tech in the structural domain. Sorento's also slightly more compact than the Benz. It's about that much shorter. But there is that quote-unquote legendary Sherman build quality to consider. Am I right? Well, there would be except the suppository GLE is actually made in America. So there's that. And two more years of warranty with the Kia, plus, of course, a far better customer support culture at Kia. They are actually polar opposites there, amazingly. Objective conclusion, all right? The poverty GLE is something of a confidence trick. Get you into the dealership on the premise of paying just over 100 grand for your SUV, and then you get hit by that options bus and it's all over. Don't hesitate to burn me with your unbridled hatred in the comments if you are that Mercedes-Benz apologist or fanboy. I assure you, I can take it. I'm not saying these SUVs are the same thing, like not at all. What I'm saying is you would have to be flat out brand snob insane to buy the bottomless money pit we know and love as mainstream Mercedes-Benz. It's quite different at the top of the range, of course. If you want that SLS, knock yourself out because they're awesome. Now, lest you think I'm on the take here, talking this vehicle up endlessly, let's talk criticisms. There's quite a few of those with the Sorento, and they might matter to you. And here's how you know this review's not paid for. Yes. Brace for impact, Kia dudes, because your new Sorento is not perfect. Hey. 
If you're the kind of driver who enjoys that Lexus-like detachment from the driving process, you'll probably find the ride quality on the Sorento somewhat harsher than you prefer. It doesn't actually crash over bumps or anything, but it's the tortoise riding new Kia that I've driven in some time. Personally, I kind of like that at times, but I'm merely flagging this for you if you like that limo-like detachment. It's most apparent when you drive over a transverse crack, like a join between two concrete slabs on the freeway or something, or maybe a bridge expansion joint. Part of that harsh character, of course, might be inherent to the nature of engineering compromise. Like I said earlier, 200 kilos on the tow ball is exactly double the capacity of the previous Sorento. So ride quality is an obvious potential casualty of that incursion into heavier tow territory. Also, a new damper provider, Sax, was chosen for the local suspension tune on this car. And some of the stiffness there might be attributable to that. The damper valving is operationally different, as I understand it, okay? So, of course, if you like chucking your car into a bend, as I do from time to time, without, of course, being a comprehensive dick on public roads, because the rest of humanity doesn't deserve that, but if you do enjoy that, you might see it as a tolerable aspect of the tune, even a plus, perhaps. One thing that I find significantly harder to forgive here is row three. Now, for starters, okay, the profile view of the top rear corner of this all-new Sorento is just a little bit too... Sanyong Stavik for my personal taste. Like, what were they thinking with the rest of the car actually looking so sharp? I don't normally comment on aesthetics, right? Because, hey, you've got eyes and therefore you are fully equipped to make your own epistemically subjective determination. I mean, styling, it's generally up there with chocolate versus strawberry or blonde versus brunette, am I right? The correct answers there, respectively, chocolate and blonde, obviously. But... The practical upshot of that stylistically disconnected metal mashup up the back is it's actually pretty claustrophobic in the back. Like, it'd be nice to have a window right next to your head so that you can turn like that and just look outside without kind of craning forward. The physical space in row three is okay, I guess, but if you're taller than me, which is to say taller than every other living sociopathic garden gnome love child of Phil Collins and Michael Chiklis or perhaps Ross Kemp, whatever. You're going to hit your head on the roof in row three whenever the vehicle goes over a bump. So there's that. Personally, I vote heavily for not sitting in row three all the way across the Nullarbor. But that's kind of in any seven-seat SUV, not so much just Sorrento. If you want the glacé cherry on the icing of the Gitmo Row 3 cake for this car, though, the head-protecting curtain airbags do not extend to cover Row 3 on this vehicle. Rows 1 and 2, they're covered. They get that critical head protection. Row 3, sorry. I was kind of hoping they'd upgrade this in the new Sorento, but apparently not. In fact, I asked Kia this question specifically as a follow-up after the press conference, and they confirmed it. So my take on that is, 
for occasional use only, row three is going to be fine for you. You know, dropping a couple of local kids home from, I don't know, footy practice on the occasional Wednesday Arvo or something, quite okay. But regular, extensive use because you've been breeding over enthusiastically, there are better options for row three crashworthiness. It's a real shame because they've taken the time and gone to the trouble to equip this vehicle with five child restraint anchor points, as I understand it. That's obviously in response to consumer demand, okay? So they are receptive to that kind of thing. In my view, though, you shouldn't be a second-class citizen on safety just because you are sitting in row three. Row three lives matter. I don't think that one's been weaponized yet, but hey, soon. Look, it's not as if extending the curtains would have been a significant technical challenge. Kia already does that for Carnival, and Mazda manages full-length curtain airbags in CX-9, if memory serves. Actually, I checked, and it does. And so do they in CX-8. The other thing that does my head in see what I did there, and Sorrento is certainly not alone on this, is the cacophony of jingles and chimes and buzzers and even haptic feedback like shaken all over that assaults you when you drive this new Sorrento, especially in dense city traffic. Don't get me wrong, okay? I like this car. I like it. I like it a lot. But fair's fair. Dudes, come on. You've got your blind spot warning, your lane departure warning, your... Kindly don't crash into the car ahead, warning. <laughs> car ahead is moving off, warning. And the annoying synthesized chick's voice on the GPS telling you that there's a children crossing ahead, even though it's friggin' 2am or something. I may be a sexist prick about that last one. One of the things I enjoy generally about driving in a car on my own is that it's something of a respite from having a woman tell me what to do. I'm old-fashioned like that. I doubt there's any hope for me. I kind of can't help it. I'm set in my ways. And then there's your default ambient background noise, which seems to be a bunch of crickets at night in a forest getting laid, as they do incessantly in a seemingly bad remake of Insect Caligula. This gets old quickly. Thankfully, you can turn a lot of this stuff off, okay? Quite a lot of it, in fact, and I suggest you do that because the Sorrento feels instantly more premium after a deep dive into the menu and unchecking a few checkboxes. The Cricket's routing is happily optional, for example, and GPS chick, you can turn her off. But if you haven't driven a new car in five years or something, this is going to seem quite the intrusive sensory assault, particularly if it's all on. And these safety warnings, right, many are completely over the top and totally unnecessary. Let me explain, okay? Pro tip, if you are designing a warning system like, I don't know, a intercontinental ballistic missile warning system, it's kind of bad up front if it fails to detect those inbound nukes. I think you'd agree. But it's also quite bad if it goes off its tits every time it sees a friggin' seagull flying past. That's called a false positive, okay? And it's very, very insidious because if it goes off every couple of minutes over and over and over and over and over and you just ignore it, 
you just keep ignoring it, and then when G tells Vlad to tell Detaldani to launch the friggin' nukes, you think it's just another seagull, right? And then, boom, it's kind of all over. That's bad. New Sorrento is exactly like that. And to be fair, it's not just New Sorrento. This industry-wide trend is occurring because carmakers are hell-bent on appeasing ANCAP and its NCAP counterparts in other markets, such as Euro NCAP. Carmakers desperately want those five stars, okay, because safety sells, especially in vehicles such as this. Unfortunately, however, ANCAP and Euro NCAP et al., they're off their friggin' meds, and the current safety rating system is a complete disgrace. It's like a nice idea done really badly, and they should hang their friggin' heads in shame, in my view, because they are, again, in my view, doing consumers like you a gross disservice. We're at the point of ANCAP doing more harm than good. Certainly the ratings are becoming meaningless, or not amenable to interpretation by ordinary people. Of course, carmaker lawyers don't help all that much either. Knock me down with a feather. They don't want a you-failed-to-warn-me class-action lawsuit on their hands, so they pump up the response of these systems to an unreasonable extent. And I do love carmaker lawyers. And here you are, okay? You're the poor schmo driving the car, getting warned about nothing too often. What you actually need here in the domain of human factors and systematic driving safeguards, it really doesn't rate, and I'd suggest it really should. New Sorrento would serve you far better if a more driver-centric approach were taken to all of these warnings. And again, I'd add that this is not the only vehicle like this, okay? They're all trending this way, sadly. The last thing I should advise you on here, and don't get me wrong, I really do like Sorento, and you should definitely put it on your shortlist if you want a solid seven-seat SUV that feels premium and is excellent value from a car maker with first-rate support credentials. There's all that to consider, but I also want you to make a truly informed choice, and I want you to get the test drive right, okay? And to do that, when you test drive this car, get the sales dude to turn off all of that crap I just mentioned, to the extent that it can be turned off. Uncheck the crickets humping box, etc. GPS check off. I'll help you steer around a bend and beep at you if you clip the apex. I mean, no thanks. Turn it all off, because then the Sorento becomes a far more premium driving experience. It's chalk and cheese. Trust me on this. Actually, don't trust me on this. Try it both ways and make your own friggin' determination. And do plug your smartphone in also via USB. Do this for two reasons, okay? Number one, make sure that the car and your phone are truly on speaking terms. Get the fat beats booming, you know, your Marilyn Manson, your Celine Dion, whatever. Invoke the voice control, phone a friend, do all of that stuff. I mean, this is an increasingly critical part of using the car, right? Do not pay a deposit, sign a contract, take delivery, and then discover that these two devices are not wholly on speaking terms. For the record, mine worked flawlessly. It's a two-year-old Samsung Galaxy Note running Android, 
no glitches there to report. So that's nice. Seamless and fast integration. That was my experience of it. Anyway, the second reason for doing this is all CarMaker infotainment OS is crap. Dependably, consistently crap. See, the screen on the new Sorento is really nice. Like, it's really nice. The graphics are excellent, etc. But the designers have done a mediocre job at best taking all that complexity and making it truly usable, right? It's worse than a friggin' Sony video camera, and that's really saying something. And all car makers are bad at this, okay? Not just Kia and not just this new Sorento. My strong advice here is use your phone to control every aspect of vehicle comms and infotainment, connectivity, whatever, that you can conceivably use your phone to control, right? Because Google and Apple are just better at all of this stuff than any car maker. Kia says it's training its dealers extra hard so they can show you how Sorento infotainment OS actually works. And I say that's not a substitute for making these systems truly intuitive, okay? Also, hands up everyone who wants to go back to a car dealer to ask how to mute the damn GPS voiceover chick. I had to have three friggin' cracks at that. There are two different menu locations for nav audio and a button on the screen, amazingly, hidden there in plain sight. It's the button that achieves the desired result of friggin' course. I'd suggest most people would rather just watch an online tutorial about how to get this done compared with going back to the dealer and looking like something of a dick admitting defeat by the infotainment OS. This sounds quite simple, of course, the online tutorial thing, but it's not. Not really. Not for a car maker. A car maker could never just get up one day and go out into the car park and film a small number of simple video tutorials like as a vlog or something, heaven forbid. They'd have to get an advertising agency involved and hire a sound stage and a crew with directors and DOPs and first ACs and soundos and wardrobe and makeup and gaffers and fluffers and all of that stuff. They'd have to shoot it all on a red Monstro or an Ari Alexa after 12 or more weeks of casting and rehearsals and a dozen meetings over brazed friggin' swan just so they can charge their customary $400,000 production and swan brazing fee. So predictable, but Dickensian at least, so that's nice, like the Ming Mols in every dealership, Jesus. Here's an example of how your phone, okay, is going to smash any car maker's infotainment OS. CarMaker GPS is crap, okay? The graphics are fine. The GPS is a technical miracle in its own right. There's absolutely no problem there. So only a team of properly dedicated CarMaker software developers could ruin it this comprehensively. It's dependably crap in every car, not just the new Sorento, okay? Whereas Google Maps is not, okay? Google Maps is continuously updated and semantically flexible. CarMaker GPS... Not so much. To prove this point, I picked up my loner evaluation Sorrento right across town. I mean, you couldn't drive further and still be in friggin' Sydney, okay? I hate picking up test cars there. I knew exactly where to go, but I don't frequent the area and I don't know it particularly well. It's like 40 k's away and I never go there except to get on a plane or collect a car. So, I would not know where to go locally if I was over there and I needed something specific urgently. 
So I grab the car and I stop in the car park just outside and I do a test, okay? I plug the phone into the car by USB. Android Auto comes up on the phone screen automatically and I press OK. I actually have to press OK twice, stone cold, on an unfamiliar car to make this work. And every time thereafter, it's just automatic, okay? And that's it. Two presses, stone cold, and you are off to the races, thankfully. You are making calls, navving, if that's a verb, playing symphony in Ming Mole Stacked or the theme from Shaft, whatever, okay? Pumping the fat beats, it's all good. So in this position, I invoke Google Maps on the center screen and I channel my inner stranger in a friggin' strange land and I type in nearest fuel and boom, it's right up there. Nearest ATM, ditto, in seconds, less than that actually. Nearest vegan restaurant, nearest gun shop, nearest strip club. These are my five test searches, okay? The real need to know stuff because Google knows everything. Try doing that with a car maker nav system. Hopeless. So, with your phone calling the shots on that center screen, in seconds, life gets instantly better. You're not drowning in clunky tech, right? You've got money and fuel. You know which restaurants to avoid if there's an unexpected zombie apocalypse and you need a few extra rounds, like, pff, all good. And if there's not, and you just need somewhere classy and stimulating, a place to kick back and chill for a few hours before returning to the office to complain about how hard your day has been, well, you've got that covered as well, haven't you? Thanks, Google. In my view, none of these criticisms is a real reason not to buy the new Sorento. I doubt a lot of reviewers are going to mention some of this stuff because they don't really think too hard about you, right? The actual car buyer at the end of this process and also because they seem to be counterproductively obsessed with being mates with everyone in the car industry. And that's a real conflict of interest if you are a car reviewer because you can have one or the other but not both. I simply suggest you bear all of this in mind before you spend the big bucks. In particular, realise that there is a way to attenuate the default level of what I would call vehicular intrusiveness so that you can actually enjoy this car more. Turn the warnings down and use your phone as the de facto infotainment hub. It's a much better, more refined experience. Bear in mind also that at the time of shooting this review, New Carnival is just 10 or 12 weeks away, and that's a really exciting proposition, especially if you need that extra seat capacity sort of all the time. The price should be about the same. Plus, the new Hyundai Santa Fe and Palisade, which are closely related to Sorento, they're also due out at about the same time, all due roughly November 2020. Very keen to know what the tow capacity is on that new Santa Fe, and I know some of you are too, because I've been getting a flood of emails and comments about this. Will they lob with two and a half thousand kilos, or hope to slip 2,000 in quietly under the radar? That'll be interesting. Just 70 or 80 more sleeps until we find out. Now look, I know this report has been a real endurance event for you, but hey, you're putting a lot of money on the table here. The details really matter. Thank you very much for sticking with me this far. I certainly hope some of this has helped. 
I'll see you next time.